God's people just weren't getting along very well. There was a constant division. One group of people looking down on another, individuals criticizing others, some people believing that they were better than others, and the church just can't work that way. God cannot do what he intends to do until people can see that we're in this together, that we're a part of something great, that we're a part of something significant. And so as he winds up this first chapter of 1 Corinthians, he talks about our calling. That is, here's what you're made of. And then he goes on to talk about what God is going to do with people like us. And then finally, he explains why, why God chooses to work this way. So we'll read, beginning with verse 26, he says, For you see your calling, brothers, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, in order that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord." When you talk about the raw materials of the church, of the body of Christ, it's a hard thing to look at sometimes. I don't know about you, but before dedicating my life to the Lord, I looked at Christians and just thought, I don't know if that's what I really want to be when I grow up. You know, and being raised in the church and having certain standards, a message kind of came across that Christians are supposed to be well, they're supposed to act so different, supposed to be a little strange, and, and certainly Christians live up to that. And you look at Christians before you're a Christian, and you go, I don't think I belong there at all. They're so weird. And, I, and to this day, I feel that way sometimes. I, if I see someone who's really strange, I pretty much instinctively say, so, are you a Christian? Because I, I kind of expect they are. <laughs> They look a little different sometimes, carry themselves different. They use a different vocabulary. Even if you, and this sounds a little weird, but even if you just look at people's shoes, sometimes you look at Christian's shoes and you go, what are they, what are they thinking? Why? And I know you're looking at mine. Here they are. But <laughs> there are certain brands of shoes that if it wasn't for Christians, the brand would have gone bankrupt a long time ago. I won't. I won't name brands, but there are shoes that hippies, only hippies wore them in the beginning, and now they're still Christians wearing those things years after it. I'm surprised that Christians don't still wear earth shoes, you know, the upside-down soles, because the idea that we get as looking at Christians is, boy, is that strange. Now, you go, yeah, but some people who aren't Christians are weird too, and, and that's certainly true. But you take the goofiest show on television, maybe that you know, are you smarter than a fifth grader show? And it's still really normal compared to anything that you see on Christian television. It, seems like it, it looks like Christians go out of their way to be odd. And it's puzzling, and a lot of times I think it keeps people from 
coming to the Lord because the truth is we don't think we belong in that group. We look at, it's kind of like going to a family reunion and looking around at your relatives and going, I have to be adopted. I can't <laughs> fit in with these people. The church, like family reunions, looks like the bar scene in that first Star Wars movie with all these <laughs> freaks floating around and you're just like, oh, where am I? Have I entered another dimension? And we try to pretend like that's not the case, but the truth is, a lot of times it is. And that's why... Christians don't get along with other Christians. Ultimately, that's at the base of it. We start to judge each other because we don't think that we are like those people. We don't think we're weird like they are. We all feel like I'm the normal one in the family. I'm the normal one in the church, and all of these other people, they're really odd. They are really strange. It, it's the way we judge ourselves, period. You know, it's why when they poll people about their driving ability... 75% of the drivers in the United States believe that they are in the top 10% of all drivers in the country. Now, you do the math, it doesn't work, but somehow that's what we think. Sometimes we just think our breath doesn't stink, you know? And, uh, and so, <laughs> you know, we think we're a higher element. And so as a result, I look around at the people that God is using and the people that he has chosen, and I just go, I don't belong here. It's why people who are single after a long time are still single, because they really think they're better than all the other single people out there. It's just the way we are wired. But Paul shows us something profound in these scriptures, and that is God deliberately chooses weirdos and losers and flakes. He does. He does it on purpose. Look at it. You see your calling. He goes, look in the mirror. God chose not many wise according to the flesh. Didn't choose a lot of smart people. Now you're going, yeah, but I'm smart. Yeah, okay, but you're probably really messed up in some other area. But he goes, there aren't a lot of smart people. There aren't a lot of mighty. Not a lot of people who are really strong. A bunch of weaklings he chose and foolish people. Not many noble. Now the idea of nobility to us today doesn't mean a lot. In those days, the only way to be successful was to have blood of a nobility, to, to be part of the royal family. Today, we look at royal families that we see and go, spare me from that gene pool. But for them, it was like, hey, here's success. And he goes, no, nah, God decided he didn't want a bunch of high achievers. He didn't choose many who are noble. But God chose foolish things. God chose the weak things in verse 27. God chose the base things in verse 28. God chose the despised things, the things that are not. That's what God decided to do. So if you're a Christian, if you're saying God chose me, you're saying that's the club I'm in. That's the category I fall into. Specifically, God chose you. Now, there's a lot of talk about what does it mean to be chosen by God. Well, here's the qualifications. He didn't choose you because you were so smart, you were so gifted, you had so much going for you. He specifically chose you, according to Paul, and you can deny this if you want, but he specifically chose you because you weren't those things that we so admire. 
He specifically chose you because you desperately needed him, first of all. And secondly, as we will see later on in the passage, he had a specific purpose in mind that could not be accomplished if he chose the best and the brightest. Now, we need to understand this, that we are surrounded by weirdos because we are weirdos. We are surrounded by losers because we are losers. And if you don't like that, and that's not for you, it's okay, move on. Go ahead and go out there and you live your life long enough, push as hard as you can, strive to succeed as much as you can. Someday you're gonna lose. And then you're gonna go, maybe I did fit in there. Maybe I, maybe I could have been a part of that place. Maybe I did qualify. But what we do so often is, we look at each other and we say, yuck, why does God pick someone like that? Why would God use someone like that? I'm a pastor. I stand up here a couple times a week to, to share with you God's word. And certainly if you wanted to, you could pick me apart in everything that I say. I do it to myself. But I say things I'm sure that are mistakes. I can't remember the last one, but I'm sure it happens. <laughs> And if you looked hard enough, you'd find it. People help point those out to me via email every, every day of my life. And so, but it's like, it, you, by you sitting there and saying, how in the world could God use someone like Dave? He's just not looking in the mirror. Because he, he loves you for the same reason he loves me. Because we just can't do much on our own. The sad thing in the world the tendency is we've got to slick up the presentation. We want to present the gospel in a way that's very professional and polished and impressive. Because so often, the church of Jesus Christ, the one he said the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against, we are embarrassed by the building materials, and as a result, we try to come off as polished as we can. Now, there isn't anything wrong with doing the best that you can with what God has called you to do, and I'm not knocking that. But all I'm saying is the truth is if you understand that the point is what we aren't, not what we are, then it takes the pressure off of us trying to impress people with how cool we are. And this has happened throughout history. The church tries to be cool. He says, you're kind of dumb, you're kind of weak, you're kind of worthless, you're sort of a disgrace, and that's why I picked you, and we go, okay, how can we not look like that? And so what we do is we spend all of our energy trying to compete with the world. And so, for instance, we go, you know what? What's really hot in the world is music videos, so we need to do really cool music videos. And what's really hot in the world is dramatic presentations or professional slick musical presentations and, and multimedia this and that. And we go, we've got to do that so that the world will see that we are better than they are. And God never wanted the world to see that we're better than they are because people who think they're pretty good aren't ready for the gospel. They aren't ready for the truth. He's called us to reach people who are desperate, and desperate people can only be reached if they realize that they qualify for what we're given out. And so, and by the way, the church almost never succeeds in being cool anyway. So they do their dramatic presentations, and they're totally corny, 
They do their music videos and they're terrible. They present their concerts and their big events and, and they're an embarrassment compared to what the world can do. And so, at its best, Christian drama can't compete with Jack Bauer on 24. It just can't. It doesn't work that way. And if we try, we'll be spinning our wheels trying to do something we're not designed to do. We don't have the raw materials to do. And we look like this pathetic imitation of that which is not satisfying the world in the least. All of that professionalism, all of that business sense, all of that sense of, you know, the world lives for the dollar and organizes themselves well only to find out when they climb to the top of the ladder they realize that it was leaned against the wrong wall. And so then we are trying to do the same thing. We're trying to do things their way. And so more and more churches are run like businesses thinking somehow that's going to reach people. But the church isn't for successful people. The church is for people who come to the point where they recognize that they are losers. And it's embarrassing to me. It's humiliating to me sometimes, even as it is to you. But the truth is, that's who he chose. Like it or not, that's what the church is. And we can pretend like we're cool all we want, but we're not. We got here because we're not cool. We got here because we realize we don't fit in. This world is out of sync with who we are. And I think to a degree, we've always known that. It's just when we get to the point of desperation that we discover it fully. And then God lifts us up and, and, and loves us and cares about us. And we discover that there is a place we fit. We thought we didn't fit in anywhere. And we find out we fit in with God's people. As soon as we start to forget that, though, the body divides. We start picking sides. We start playing games. We start pretending. And no longer can I be honest about who I really am because I have to keep up a good front to convince you that I'm not who you think I am, that really, ultimately, that I'm not who I am. And so I'm worried all the time. Oh, no. What if they discover who I really am? Well, Paul says, this is what the church is made of. Deal with it. Accept it. Recognize it. Recognize, too, if you are called by God, that's why he called you. And again, you could look at this and go, well, I am very successful in business. Or I am a very wise person. I'm a great student. I'm well-read. I'm eloquent. I'm charming. I have a great... Okay, you might be. He said not many. He didn't say there weren't any. But the funny thing about those rare exceptions is that generally, when they have one area of life in which they are overwhelmingly powerful, they have other areas of life that completely destroy them at the same time. And ultimately, we're all lame in one way or another. And he goes, that's who you are. But the second thing that I want you to notice as we look at this passage, yes, the first thing is he chooses junk. Now, again, if that hurts your sense of self-esteem, sorry. <laughs> God chose a guy like me. I'm just blunt, and I'm telling you as it is. But the second thing that we see is look what God does with junk. Because, again, he says in verse 27, God chose the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. There is something that makes sense 
on a level that will never be comprehended by human wisdom, no matter how intelligent you may be, no matter how well-read and well-versed you may be, no matter what you ever learn, there's still something inside that doesn't make sense. And God, in His wisdom can make sense for you of things that you can't understand otherwise. In fact, the simplest-minded person in this world, a person who may have great mental disabilities, great emotional limitations, great academic problems, and yet when they meet Jesus Christ, they can understand the secret to life better than the most intelligent scholar on the face of the earth who doesn't know Jesus Christ. And isn't that funny? And sometimes as I was backstage in the green room playing with the Schrader kids before the dedication, I'm looking at this little guy, Drew, and he's just a baby, but he's always smiling. He's, he's constantly in motion, but everything's happy. He didn't, you know, when he was back there, he I don't know how to say this delicately, but he, his body put off some waste, and, and <laughs> he didn't care. He wasn't like, oh, no, what's Pastor Dave going to think of me when I stink? <laughs> A lot of us think we don't stink, but, you know, it's like he doesn't care. That kid's happy because he knows something we don't know, and it isn't because his parents have taught it to him. It's because there is a wisdom in this life that the wisdom that academics can achieve can't even touch it. And God is doing great things. And, and some of those great things are so wise, he can do it with our foolishness. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. There are some places of absolute weakness whereby strength is discovered. Later on, Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about this with this thorn in the flesh, and he said, finally, God told him, you know what? My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul said, I'll glory in my weakness, because if my weakness allows God to show his strength, great. God has ways of doing this. The strongest people I've ever known weren't the strongest people I've ever known physically. In fact, some of the most powerful people I've ever met are people who had very little strength that you would see on the outside. I had a professor in seminary who taught church history, and he just taught part-time, usually one or two classes at a time, because his full-time job, he was a history professor at Cal State Fullerton. He was a great teacher, one of the best I ever had, and I was privileged to get to know him a bit and to have him minister to me. Every year, seminaries all over the country would beg him to come to work as a seminary professor full-time, but he said, I can't leave my ministry there at the college. And his ministry, he was voted the most popular teacher. Everybody loved him. His appointments were scheduled for months on end, and most of them with big, strong athletes. And I'd go to his office, and there's a line of these big, huge guys. And there he was, one at a time, bringing them into his office, and they would fall down on their knees, weeping, and he would lay hands on them and pray for them. And it was the burst of energy they needed to get through the next phase of whatever it is they were going through in their life. And he was a thin, sickly person. He was constantly sick. He had no strength at all. He was just a stick of a man. And yet, he ministered with a power that was unbelievable. 
a power that was so much greater than some people who minister out of strength. You know, sometimes there are people who just seems like, wow, they want to impress people. Some of the greatest blowhards in the world are preachers who just can't wait to tell you. This guy, in weakness, would put their strength to shame. Amazing. And I talked to him about it, and I said, I've never seen anything like this. And he said, yeah, you know, he goes, these big guys, big, strong, burly guys. If I was a big, strong, burly guy, we'd be like, oh, button heads. You know, it would be back and forth, can you top this? But he said, I'm no threat to them at all. And so they just come in here and they melt. It's just how God does it. God can do that. I'll bet you that for most of you, you've had a really strong, weak person in your life. You've seen the person who can melt your heart. For some of you, it happened when you first had a child. For some of you, maybe even more so when you had your first grandchild. And you realized, how can this little weak creature bring me to tears? How can this little person who can't help me at all, yet right now I would die for them in a second, how does that work? And you could ask the same question as to how a guy who had been beaten within an inch of his life and then was nailed to a cross, blood flowing down, stabbed in his side, water and blood spewing forth, how could he change the world at that point? But he showed it's not about what we think weakness is, that there are times when the greatest strength is actually weakness. And, and so Paul says, that's what God wants to do. In order for him to do it, he has to find weak people, and you're it. Deal with it. He goes on to say, 